Hi, everybody, and welcome to this edition of The Taking Control of Your Diabetes Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Jeremy Pettis. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Steve Edelman. So, as always, our little background is that Steve and I have both been living with type 1 diabetes since we were 15. We're now endocrinologists, work at the University of California, San Diego. And Steve founded this not-for-profit, uh, Taking Control of Your Diabetes, almost almost 30 years ago now. <laughs> so, um, it's good to be here with you, Steve. So, Steve, what's our topic today? Yeah, it's a really important topic that you and I could honestly say we do not know that much about, is bone health and people with diabetes. What are the risks? How to prevent them? Everything that's important to know. And we have one with us, one of our colleagues, uh, Gina Woods, who um, was a fellow at UCSD that I'm proud to say I was the fellowship director and right along uh, your story as well. And Gina has uh, gravitated towards making this one of her areas of interest. Mm Mm-hmm. So we'll have Gina say hi in a second, but I think that's kind of a fun history is that, so for people that don't know, you go to medical school, you get your medical degree, then you do your, like a three-year residency in internal medicine, and if you want to go into a specialty, you do what you call a fellowship. And so to do become an endocrinologist, you have to do two years of this specialty fellowship uh, training. And Gina and I actually were fellows together at the same time under the tutelage of a wise Dr. Edelman. Um, (laughs) And so Gina's here, who's an expert in bone health. And we're talking how it's so interesting that endocrinology is such a wide area (laughs) that because it is a hormone specialty, it touches kind of every part of the body from the thyroid to, you know, insulin as a hormone. So diabetes is under endocrinology, adrenal diseases, thyroid diseases, and we have a bone specialist. So Gina, say hi, uh, introduce yourself, and tell us how you got into bone disease. Yeah. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. Um, I got into bone disease, I guess, uh, when I was a fellow. I was just interested in the fact that the bone is an endocrine organ. I never really knew that. It produces hormones and responds to hormones. And I just thought that was pretty interesting and um, was fortunate to work with some great mentors. And just the more I got into it, the more I got into it. So so was Steve one of those mentors? or? <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? Um, I work with Gina every Tuesday mm-hmm. at the Veteran Affairs Diabetes Clinic. And I am impressed how well you're versed in diabetes and other areas, thyroid and bone. And you're going to be heading up a new bone clinic, I hear, as soon as you can organize that. Yeah, that's one of my goals is to develop a bone health center at UCSD. Um, I do uh, run the osteoporosis clinic at UCSD currently. And actually, Gina is now the chief of our whole division. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can talk about that yet, <laughs> which means that she's technically our boss. You just did talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so she, our <laughs> boss is here with us, so we got to you know, act right, Steve. More, more work, uh, no, no increase in pay. How does that oh, sound? Sounds well, great. Let's, let's get into yeah. it. Um, so why is this an important topic? So, so when we say bone disease, what we generally are talking about is osteoporosis and helping people avoid fractures, broken hips, um, uh, broken spinal, you know, bones, things like that. So, but why is this particularly important for people with diabetes? Well, it's important because people with diabetes are at higher fracture risk than people without diabetes, but they are often not identified as being at risk for fractures. They're often not screened for bone disease or offered treatment. So I was really happy to see that in the 2024 update to the ADA standards of care, a lot more attention was given to bone health. Jeremy, have you ever been screened for bone health? We not. played. Uh, have you? What's that game we played where you put your hand on the dots? Twister. We played Twister and we didn't break anything. Is that <laughs> is that a screening test? No, seriously. 
I've never been screened out. That was one of my questions looking at your notes uh, beforehand. Should we differentiate, you know, when you say at risk, is it type one, type two, men, women? Well, good questions. Um, Overall, women are at higher fracture risk than men. The statistic is that in the general population, 50% of women over the age of 50 will have a fracture in her lifetime. And the, the rate in men is about 20 to 25% of men over 50 will have a fracture. So it's very, fractures are very common. And, you know, they cause pain, disability, reduced quality of life. And, you know, in the later years, hip fractures are often the beginning of the end. So those are things we really want to prevent. Well, I'll just say real quickly, it's a dumb question. But when you say fractures, I mean, do you have to be hit by your spouse or do you fall off a curb? <laughs> or are they just spontaneous fractures stepping off a, a high step? You know, I just don't know. Yeah. So uh, generally we call a fragility fracture a fracture that occurs with low trauma. So a fall from standing height, but that could be, you know, walking your dog and tripping and breaking your wrist. That's a fragility fracture. Mm -hmm. A healthy bone shouldn't fracture in that circumstance. But a lot of times those types of fractures associated with activity um, are not recognized as being a sign of bone disease. Now, I want to, you know, Steve asked, so type one, type two, are they both at risk or... Yes, both are at risk. Um, Damn it. (laughs) Jeremy, add that to the list of things we're going to get. Well, I was going to say that, like, you know, a lot of times it can be frustrating when people say diabetes, um, and they they usually mean type 2, and us type 1s don't know if we fall into that category or not. Or vice versa. You know, but this is one thing where we actually all are blood brothers and, you know, at high risk Mm -hmm. of bone disease, whether it's type 1 or type 2. So this is really for everybody out there listening who has diabetes. But which leads me to my next question is, so why? Why do people with diabetes, why are they at higher risk of of fractures? Why is this another thing that we have to worry about? Yeah, good question. We don't fully understand all the reasons why, but um, from research that has looked at the architecture of the bone, we see that in general, people with diabetes have more pores in their bone which make it more likely to fracture. So if you think about like ripping a piece of paper out of a pad, if that paper is perforated with little holes, it's more likely to, it's easier to tear. So same applies to bone. We do know that having higher A1C is associated with higher fracture risk. So whether, you know, well-controlled diabetes really is a risk factor, we don't really know. Uh, You you know, my sister being a reporter for the uh, New York Post, she's always into the question. So she would say... Why do the bone have holes in them? Well, and if you don't know, you don't don't make it up like yeah. like I might. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. We know a couple things about what's happening in the bone of people with diabetes. So we have cells that build our bone and cells that break down our bone. And we actually rebuild 10% of our skeleton each year. So we think of our skeleton as a fixed structure, but we're building bone, we're breaking down bone. As we get older and in women, as our estrogen drops, we really start breaking down a lot of bone. But in people with diabetes, the bone building cells seem underactive. So whether that's due to, you know, insulin or other growth factors, it's not really clear, but the bone building cells are are less active. Um, And then, of course, the advanced glycation end products associated with high blood sugar have adverse effects on the bone. Yeah, we'll talk about ways to prevent that near the end and talk about hormones in in, in particular. Yeah, so you know, when I was doing my flash reading before this podcast, you know, it was kind of clear to me that yes, like 
better control is better in terms of your bone health. So if you're listening and you have diabetes, certainly getting your blood sugars under control is one thing that you can do. But it's not clear if you have kind of good control, your A1C is less than seven, can you make that risk, you know, zero or the same as somebody without diabetes? We don't know. And there are some things that, um, like heart disease and in, 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 in diabetes, that if, even if you control your blood sugars, people with diabetes still have an elevated risk, and we don't exactly know why. So there's still kind of a lot of questions in this area that I think is interesting. But it is kind of a bummer. This is something that we have to look out for. I'm going to get screened tonight. Well, that's kind of my next question is, okay, so people are listening. They have diabetes. Maybe they're freaking out. I don't want to break my hip, et cetera. Who should get screened? When? What are the guidelines for that? So I would say anyone with diabetes should get screened at age 50. Uh, and if, if bone density is normal, then you may not need to be screened that frequently. But in general, um, routine screening is recommended for all women starting at the age of 65, but women between 50 and 65 should be screened if they have any risk factors. So diabetes is on the list of many, many things that are considered risk factors, having low body weight, having had steroid treatments, having autoimmune disease, there's many risk factors. So uh, many women over 50 should be screened. I think 65 is probably too late to start screening. We're missing a lot of opportunity to intervene if we wait till 65. You know, screening is so important. We screen patients for kidney disease, eye disease. Uh, we screen for high cholesterol levels. And so many of these things are written in our notes mm-hmm. and reminders and what we call our template to make sure we don't forget. And it's ingrained in our minds, but I've never screened anybody for bone disease. Now, I have ordered DEXA scans, some of the tests you're going to mention in a second, but these are women who already had a problem. So so you mentioned women. So mm-hmm. basically, if you're listening, you have diabetes, you're female, anybody over 50 should get screened. And we'll talk about how to do that. What about men? Yeah, men are underscreened big time for osteoporosis. Uh, Medicare doesn't cover routine screening for men. They cover it for men with risk factors. So again, diabetes being on that list of many risk factors, I think men over the age of 50 with diabetes should also be screened. So, Steve, you're just, what, one or two years overdue? Well, I, my question is, when you get to a certain age and you haven't had a fracture, do you still need to screen? Let's say you're over 65. No. Uh, well, we should, you know what we should do? We should, you should get screened, and we should, like, film it. Do the process and, okay. you know, what it was like to get it done and things like that. It'll be fun. Well, we'll let's talk about on. the test, Gina. Yeah, so sure. how, do you, how do you get, so first of all, I guess, who would do that? Like, this is your primary care doctor. Do you have to see an endocrinologist? Who would you, don't you talk to? You don't have to see an endocrinologist. Mm-hmm. Your primary care doctor can order a DEXA scan. It's called a DEXA scan. It's a bone density scan. It's a very simple procedure. Um, it's a low radiation dose x-ray of your lower back and your hip. Um, it's quick, safe, inexpensive, easy to do. And they, I would say it's easily read because they have so many standards like what I don't want to get into the numbers now, but there are normal, there's abnormal, there's osteopenia, there's osteoporosis, just kind of like with, you know, different uh, categories of obesity, normal, overweight. So we'll talk about the results, how to interpret them, but real quick, I mean, this thing takes kind of seconds, right? And it's essentially an x-ray, maybe a couple minutes, but just to allay people's like, you know, sometimes people hear like an imaging procedure, I have to go to get this procedure done, like... Do people ever have like concerns about getting it done to you or is that not a problem? People ask about the radiation exposure. It's less than a standard radi- uh, x-ray. Um, it's about the equivalent of 
I think, two cross-country flights. So if you wouldn't worry about flying back and forth to the East Coast a couple times, then you shouldn't worry about... Well, I am now. Jeez. That's radiation <laughs> I'm getting. Exposure of getting an well, exoscan. I've gotten 6,000 x-rays in my life. <laughs> um, okay. So then like Steve was saying, so somebody goes and gets this you know, special x-ray and the results come back and there's categories. So um, there's specific numbers that you look at that you don't have to necessarily get into, but how should somebody kind of interpret this with their doctor when they get it done, let's say the first time? Sure. So there's three basic categories of results, normal bone density, osteopenia or low bone mass, and osteoporosis. So I will just mention that we diagnose osteoporosis based on a T-score of negative 2.5 or below. But in people with type 2 diabetes, we would consider them to have osteoporosis if their T-score is negative 2. It's a different cutoff. Oh, I didn't know that. Is that a relatively new like update or... Yes, because the bone density of people with type 2 diabetes is higher overall than people without diabetes, but their fracture risk, so the DEXA scan underestimates the fracture risk. So if you just went based on that T-score, you would think they're fine, but really um, you are missing the opportunity to... So it's, it's misleading in people with it's diabetes. It's misleading, correct. I'm, I'm not even going to ask you why, because we probably don't even know. But uh, There's some <clears throat> theories, but yeah, it's... So is that on most reports that it'll say like, you know, 2.5 osteoporosis, but if you have diabetes? Nope. No. I, d- I doubt it. Nope. Yeah. I doubt so it. So then are, do most primary care doctors know that? Probably not. Yeah. So that we're probably still really under screening one mm-hmm. and under diagnosing osteoporosis. Yeah. I, I would say this. That's one of the reasons uh, I founded TCOID is exactly the title, Taking Control of Your Diabetes. And for you listeners here, you know, you could be gentle with your caregivers, with your doctors. They, they may not know. They may not have been educated. Some of these guidelines are new. It's, it's no problem that you should ask them. You can get screened. And you've heard that this is part of screening process. And that's so important for people to take charge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So you get your results. Normal makes sense. We kind of all know, I guess, what normal is. Um, what does osteopenia mean versus osteoporosis? Like, um, is that kind of in terms of risk of fracture? Or how should people think about those different categories? Yes, exactly right. So um, the fracture risk is related to the bone density. So having osteopenia would be a higher risk than normal. So it's a, it's a gradation. Um, people in that osteopenia category, if they have other risk factors, um, or have had previous fractures, they still might benefit from treatment. So your doctor would assess your bone density in combination with other things to decide if you should be on medicine for, for your bones. And when does that transition happen between primary care and a bone specialist? Like, can most primary care doctors, quote unquote, handle like osteopenia, osteoporosis? Like, when does somebody come to see you, I suppose? Yeah, most can. Most primary care doctors can. I mean, the sad Truth is, there's not enough bone health specialists to treat everyone. So primary care doctors do a lot of of the evaluations and treatments, and they are qualified to do that. Uh, But people who have had recent fractures, especially hip or spine fractures, or whose bone density is not improving with treatment, should see a bone health specialist. Well, you, you mentioned not improving with treatment. How often should you get a bone density test, a DEXA scan? Uh, so generally every two to three years if you are on treatment for osteoporosis. Um, and if you don't have osteoporosis and you get a screening test, uh, you should still get rescreened at some point in the future, usually I'd say three to five year intervals. 
So then we can talk about treatment once like you have a, a diagnosis, but everybody wants to avoid that diagnosis. Correct. So maybe we should talk about prevention first of, you know, how much calcium should I be taking or vitamin D or what kind of diet or exercise that must come up all the time. Yep. And add in there, what, what other drugs do people take that could make osteoporosis worse, yep. including diabetes drugs? Yes. So um, let's start with nutrition. Calcium is very important for bone health, so everyone should get at least 1,000 milligrams of calcium per day. Um, if you're older or you have osteoporosis, that should be 1,200 milligrams per day. And we, that's from the diet or just well, total? total. Okay. We prefer, try to get as much as you can from your diet. Uh, it's easier to absorb the calcium from food um, than it is from supplements, and there's been some concern about po possible risks of supplements, but really um, the main thing that's shown the main thing that supplements increase the risk for is kidney stones. Mm. So um, taking high amounts of calcium pills can cause kidney stones. So Are there we, any particular brand that you could recommend that we could ask to be sponsors of TCOID <laughs> after this podcast? I'll have to think about that. <laughs> I don't know. What's your favorite brand? That chew, those Viactive. Chewy, Viactive, yeah. yeah. Chocolate or caramel, I can't tell which one I like better. The problem is... I start eating them like I enjoy them. I'm going to get kidney well, stones. Kidney stone. have all these kidney stones. <laughs> yeah. So there's no like age that you would say every woman needs to start taking a calcium supplement. No, it depends on your diet. I mean, um, if you drink three glasses of milk a day, you don't need a calcium supplement. Although uh -huh. not many people do that anymore. But uh, milk is associated. Milk drinking is associated with better bone density. So I drink a ton of milk. Like Gina. Um, <laughs> I know you do. Yeah. <laughs> you take cholesterol meds, doesn't matter. Um, what about vitamin D? The Viactive has D and, K and potassium, in, I noticed, on the label. But um, is it important to take a certain amount of vitamin D along with the calcium? I would say yes. Um, you know, vitamin D deficiency is common. Vitamin D is not found in many foods. It's in egg yolks and mushrooms, uh, but not that many foods. So I would say I think it's important for everyone to get, we're supposed to all get 600 to 800 units a day. More than that is safe. Um, and a lot of the calcium supplements have the vitamin D right in them. So it's easy. Okay. Yeah, there was a craze once where everyone was measuring in our diabetic patients vitamin D levels, and it always seemed to be low. Even in San Diego, where you get a lot of sun and that's supposed to help. Yeah, but in the winter, even in San Diego, we don't get enough UVB radiation to make enough vitamin D. And as we get older, our skin is less efficient at making vitamin D. So getting a combination calcium, vitamin D sounds like a good thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the other big part that comes up with prevention is, you know, it's incredibly common in postmenopausal women. So the discussion's always been around, should I take hormones postmenopausal? So I know that's been a kind of a big debate, but where are we at right now? If you're postmenopausal, should you take, you know, estrogen supplements? Give us the one-liner. What you know, what, hey, I just what, asked a question. This is part of your question. Okay. <laughs> when when the estrogen was vilified, yes. causing cancer, and then then take us twenty years up until the current time. All right. Is that okay, sir. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you haven't heard, menopause is having a moment. Um, if you have been following the news in the last year, um, a New York Times reporter named Susan Dominus did a great piece on menopause. It was called "Women Have Been Misled About Menopause." It went viral. Another podcast, probably not quite as popular as this one, The Daily, put out by the New York Times, produced yeah. a piece on it. It's a little um, startup podcast yeah. they got over there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, if you're interested in the topic, I highly recommend look, listening to that uh, Menopause is Having a Moment podcast. Um, so yeah, we're really trying, in my field, in bone health, we're trying to 
um, turn that moment into a movement and really re-educate doctors and patients about hormone therapy. So before, so more than 20 years ago, before the Women's Health Initiative, hormone therapy was the most commonly prescribed drug in the U.S., hands down. And then, but we and lots of observational studies um, looked like estrogen was beneficial, lots of benefits. So pretty much all women at menopause were given Prempro. We had never done a randomized study. That was done. It was stopped early due to concern for harm in the hormone group. This was like a bomb dropping on the medical community, and prescriptions for hormones plummeted. And really, the med- the medical community kind of threw threw up their hands, and they stopped. And the risk was like clots, and what were some of yeah, the risks? Yeah, so cardiovascular, blood clots. There was concern about breast cancer. Um, so yeah, main, mainly cardiovascular events and breast cancer risk. But um, you know, like all studies, it's complicated, and you have to really dig into the data to understand it completely. And so now we've had over twenty years to do that. And what's become clear is that the timing that you start hormones is really important. So. Starting hormones as close as possible to the time of menopause is much safer and has a lot of benefits. So I'm not saying everyone should go on hormones automatically, but everyone, every woman going through menopause should at least have the information and be given the choice. Yeah, all three of us were at UCSD with very world-famous individual Elizabeth Barrett-Connor, who was the one involved in those early studies, and even Cindy Stunkel, who's still there. It, it really has changed 180 degrees from being awesome to, to being deadly. Now it's coming back. Yeah, we're trying to, you know, be reasonable, kind of find a nice middle ground. Um, but the problem is in the last 20 years, we stopped teaching doctors how to prescribe hormones. Mm-hmm. So um, women are going to have to advocate and ask for the information. So I just I'm, I'm going to spare our listeners of the only joke endocrinologists have. Here we go. Just get I'm not going to say it. Edit this out, Eric. <laughs> How to make a hormone. I'm not going to say it. But um, could I ask about testosterone? Yes. What's the role of testosterone? So testosterone is also important for bone. Um, and men who have low testosterone are, are at risk for osteoporosis. So... Um, and people with diabetes are high risk of low testosterone. Add it to the list. You know, another thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then men with... Um, like at a certain age with diabetes, we talked about this, you probably get screened for low T based on their symptoms, things like that. But certainly, I guess if a man comes in with a low bone density, it's something that you would you would check. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, all right. So before we get in again to specific treatment for osteoporosis, since this is you know a diabetes podcast, are there things that come to mind, particularly for people with diabetes, whether it's prevention or you know, certain diabetes meds that they should avoid? Anything that comes to mind that you want our listeners to know? Oh, yeah. I forgot to talk about exercise. We were, yeah. we were well, on we, nutrition, we, and we then we skipped that. right yeah. over <laughs> exercise. So exercise is super important for bone health, but it's not just any exercise. You have to know what type of exercise is going to benefit your bones. Um, my favorite study was called the Lift More Study. It was done in Australia, where they randomized postmenopausal women with osteoporosis and osteopenia to do this high-impact resistance, high intensity impact and resistance. <laughs> anyway, high, like high intense, a hit training okay. basically. So they were so doing, like, um, they were doing deadlifts CrossFit kind of stuff. Yep. Deadlifting, yeah. power squats, drop, jump, drops, flipping tires and stuff. <laughs> basically. <laughs> no, pulling, you know, tractor trailers with yeah. their teeth. No, but this is something that's reproducible that yes. people could do. You know, and, and that do. woman puts out an exercise program, right? You told yeah, me about yeah. that. Yeah. And, um, and then she had a control group, and they did lower impact exercises. And 
both groups exercised 30 minutes twice a week for eight months, and the um, the hit group had improvements in their bone density, and the other group's bone density went down. So it's basically two two things: strength training. And it needs to be moderate or high intensity. So when we say that, we're saying you have to be lifting weights or doing some kind of resistance training that feels hard. And you can do like six to 10 reps, but it's challenging. Okay. It can't be light. And then um, impact. So impact exercises are where you, one or both feet leave the ground and then return to the ground. That's the MBA. Um, yeah. So um, <laughs> that impact on the bone is what stimulates bone formation. Okay. And so we, the thing we really worry about is hip fractures. So are you trying to do the strength training specifically in your legs or back, or does it matter? You want to target all the major yeah. muscle groups. Um, so, yeah. Um, and obviously this type of training has a lot more benefits. It will help your bone, but it'll also help you preserve your muscle because mm -hmm. we also lose muscle as we get older and also just help us to be more functional. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Well, Steve, you got a lot of work to do. You got to get screened. We got to adjust your workout regimen. Gina, <laughs> one of my last questions is what do you know about manopause? Because Jeremy's got a bad case. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> um, okay. So, talk us a little bit. Like, let's say you get your DEXA scan, you're screened. They give you a diagnosis that is, you know, concerning that you have low, low bone mineral density. You need to go on therapy. What's kind of your first line treatment? Talk, talk through some of the options people have. Sure. Um, so the treatments for osteoporosis fall in two basic categories. Um, Anti-resorptives, which stop the bone loss that's happening, and anabolics, which stimulate bone formation. So for people who are have osteoporosis based on their bone density but haven't had fractures and their T-score isn't very low, they could take... Um, a bisphosphonate like Fosamax. That's still the most commonly prescribed drug. It works. It got a bad rep, but it, the problem with Fosamax is you can't take it for too long. So usually you take it for five years and then you stop it for a few years and it is very safe and effective. Uh, for people who have had like spine fractures, for example, we would recommend one of the bone builders. They're very, um, they're injections, but they are very effective at rebuilding the bone. Yeah. One of the things that's been fascinating to me about these uh, Vosmax type medications is that you can take them once a week, some are once a month. Mm -hmm. There's even an IV that you can get that's like once a year, yep. or sometimes every other year. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. It's a nice feature to you, not have to take so many pills. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, especially when, you know, adherence and persistence is a tough thing. And I've heard about there's only a certain amount of time that you take it, like you mentioned, but these anabolic ones, these are monoclonal antibodies. Uh, some of these newer drugs, and I, I'm just guessing they have to be expensive. Unfortunately, they are expensive. So, um, name a couple, just so. So, Forteo and Timlos are both daily injections. Um, they are PTH analogs, so they act on the parathyroid hormone receptor. Um, very, very effective for spine, improving spine bone density, um, preventing fractures. Um, it's a two-year course of a daily sub-Q shot. Mm -hmm. um, they are expensive. And then the newest one is called Avenity. That's a monthly injection for 12 months. That is a monoclonal antibody. Um, coverage insurance-wise is a little better with that one, and it's really effective. I mean, it's great to have such effective tools in my toolbox. You know, I'm surprised about Forteo because that came out years ago. Yeah. And it's it's not off. There's a biosimilar, but unfortunately the cost hasn't come down as much as we hoped Got it, it would. Well, it sounds to me when you get to this stage, uh, you so sounds like you need to see a bone specialist. 
with these newer drugs, these monoclonal antibodies, the anti-resorptive, you know. If you have very low bone density, like a T-score of minus three or lower, or you've had fractures, then yes. But um, otherwise, you know, Fosamax still works for people who have mild, you know, kind of early osteoporosis and want to try to reverse it. You can still mm-hmm. do that with Fosamax. And then talk about kind of monitoring, because what I remember is that, let's say you go on Fosamax and you get your bone density tested another year or two, that your bone density might not change at all, but you're still being protected and your, your, your risk of fracture is going down. So how do you coach people through like not getting hung up on these, these DEXAs? I mean, how do you talk about that? Yeah, it's a little tricky, but even if your bone density stays stable on treatment, that still means your fracture risk is reduced. And I like to show people a picture of the bone density scan because it has this nice graph that shows this line that's sloping down, which is the average bone density with age. So what I tell people is we're all going down. We're all <laughs> riding that line. So even if you just you know stabilize, that's winning. You're still you know stopping that bone loss. Yeah. Well, you wow. know, I think there are like, so many treatments now. And like, I just, you know, I didn't do my fellowship with you that long ago, but even since then, I think things are continuing to change. And it is nice to see this real overlap now with diabetes appropriately. So you mentioned the ADA, which is the American Diabetes Association. These, they release these guidelines every year, um, everything, what medications we should be using, how we monitor CGM pumps, whatever. Is this the first time that Bones made it in there? Has it been there a while or... There was a brief mention of bone yeah. in last year's edition, but this year it got several pages. Okay. Yeah, someone someone on their committee had an interest in bone. And it went from like, yeah, you should keep an eye on your bone to three pages of information, most of which we're covering now. So I agree with you. Mm-hmm. Like, when since when does the ADA get involved in bone? But it's obviously important. Yeah. And we should put it in our little note templates, like you said, that I always like have blood pressure there, cholesterol, so I don't forget it. And you know, Make sure bone, di- something else to it. Anyone on insulin gets glucagon. Yeah. You know, just a whole list of things. And we talked about this in clinic yesterday. The list of things that we need to remember <laughs> are getting longer mm-hmm. and longer. But the bone health is important, it really is. And I'd say especially for our women, but also for us guys too. So are there things, anything you want to leave our listeners with when it comes to maybe a message of hope, I suppose, or some good news in this, in this area? Um, sure. There's lots of research going on. I mean, we have lots of effective medications, but in addition to that, there's a lot of work going on looking at nutrition and bone health, uh, medical foods for bone, um, exercise. You know, I think that with all this research going on, we're going to have a lot of great options for preventing loss of bone and muscle as we get older. Well, Gina, I, I learned so much from uh, just reviewing the notes and have, doing this podcast with yeah. you. And Jeremy, I'm impressed how much you know well, about bones. It's like I can feel the cobwebs coming out of the back of my brain <laughs> you know, somewhere. Me too. Yeah. My, my cobwebs solidify. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, Gina, so much. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, if you like it, make sure to share it, like it, send it to friends. And we enjoy doing this. We'll see you at the next one. Thanks, Gina. Thanks for having me.